This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Some advocates for police reform have pushed for sweeping changes, but others are calling for a more measured approach that can even feel more personal. On today's show, we hear about a Boulder community that's taking steps to address its rising crime rate. And we explore a new report showing a significant rise in hate crimes across the state. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. This week, we're taking an in-depth look at how policing in Boulder has changed over the past year. While many protesters and advocates have called for major reforms like defunding the police, other kinds of change are more subtle, slow-moving, and deeply personal. As KUNC's Scott Franz reports, at one apartment complex in Boulder where the crime rate is high, the question on the minds of residents is how much policing is the right amount. On a warm summer afternoon, people are out and about at the San Juan del Centro apartments. It's lively. On a good day, it's fun. Sonia Sarabia has been raising her four children in this mostly Hispanic and Latino apartment complex for 14 years. It was Boulder's first low-income subsidized housing when it was built 50 years ago. As we walk around the open space in the middle of the sprawling complex of two-story red and green buildings, we see dozens of children climbing on a playground, and the oldest residents are sitting at a small picnic table nearby playing Lotteria, a Spanish card game similar to bingo. Hola, buenas. Oh, they're asking if you're going to bring the money to play. <laughs> <laughs> too, too high stakes for me. <laughs> Sarabia knows all of these women very well. The San Juan community is tight-knit, and she trusts most of her neighbors. Even with her kids, um, <laughs> if, we, if even one of us have to go run an errand, you can ask your neighbor, hey, can you watch out my kid for five minutes? I'll be right back. But when Sarabia tells other people she lives here, these are not the first things that come to mind. They think that just because we live in San Juan that we're drug dealers, that we um, have guns, that we beat up people, and that it's, but it's not. Like, it's something that we got stereotyped because of what happened 20 years ago. According to a memo written by a cop assigned to the complex, things got so bad and violent here in the 1980s, police were not allowed to patrol the area without backup. In the 1990s, a 16-year-old shot another boy in the face with a handgun. A police report at the time labeled the community as a, quote, haven for criminal activity. Still, these days, when the card games end and everyone goes inside, that's when Sarabia says she starts to get nervous. People start coming and try to steal things from our, our cars. Like a package containing her mom's medical equipment this year. During an earlier interview on Zoom from her bedroom, Sarabia was more blunt about the security situation. Some people are way too violent, which a lot of them have moved. But when they, some of them, they're still giving them chances, which it's not helpful for the community. She says people are frustrated about how sometimes they'll file police reports and then nothing happens, while others fear that even calling police could get undocumented immigrants living here in trouble. 911 calls from this apartment complex have nearly tripled since 2017. And for the last three years, it's been Officer Raul Montano's job to try to turn things around. We try to connect with people. We try to make sure the people are not seeing us there as a law enforcement 
capacity all the time, trying to enforce the law, but also as a resource. Montano is part of a team of officers who regularly patrol this area. He grew up in Mexico, which he says helps him connect with the residents. I feel like it's easier for me to build rapport just going in there and speaking the language, speaking Spanish to them and knowing where they came from and them knowing where I came from. You know, it's just, it, I feel like you're able to build that connection easier. And that's unique for the Boulder Police, which had only 7% of its officers identify as Hispanic last year. Still, there's tension. People try to push your buttons, you know, tell me like race traitor and all this other stuff, you know, obviously because they think because we're the same race or the same heritage, they're going to get free passes, you know, but I learned how to adapt to that. Figuring this out is important to Montano. He says growing up, his family distrusted the police and would not report crimes because of that stigma. Montano's team included four officers when it started. But because a lot of other officers have left the department recently due to stressors related to COVID and the statewide effort to reform policing, Montano says his team is now half the size, and he's not sure how much longer he'll be on the beat. If staffing keeps decreasing, we might get pulled back to go back and patrol citywide. But at the end of the day, what success will really mean to me is if there's no need for police presence there at all. Meanwhile, Boulder Police Chief Maris Harold is working on a new strategy for the San Juan Apartments, one that does not depend as much on sending more officers to the area, essentially less policing, something many communities have been pushing for since last summer's protests. It's part of a broader reform effort that started two years ago after an officer wrongfully pulled a gun on a black man who was picking up trash outside of his dorm at Naropa University. In your neighborhood, would you want the police there, you know, on the hour, every hour? It would be really weird, wouldn't it? And that thinking is a departure from her predecessors, who opened a police office inside the San Juan apartment complex in the 1990s and ramped up patrols after a similar spike in calls to police. Harold is convinced that a fresh look at crime data will eventually eliminate the need for a permanent police presence. What we do know is that many of the calls are for assaults and domestic violence. There's a small number of units that are contributing to a larger proportion of the calls for service. So we have to get in there and figure out why. Do they need services? She calls this tactic crime science. Harold used a similar data-driven approach in Cincinnati to tackle a spike in shootings. I will guarantee you by the time we're done with our analysis, I'll be able to pinpoint specific units that are contributing to the overall problems in San Juan. And then the way we we're looking at domestic violence, will I be able to collaborate with people that can actually stop the cycle of domestic violence? I will be able to do that. But first, she is working to empower the property managers and residents to help change the trajectory. When she toured the apartments herself earlier this year, it caused a bit of a stir. It also revealed some of the challenges that lie ahead. Trust from the community, uh, Hispanic community to the police, there are a big gap in between. Luz Galicia is a housing organizer who has been working to improve the security situation at the apartments for the last two years. She said some residents were initially suspicious when they saw the city's top cop in their neighborhood. We got a few phone calls and say, what are they doing here? So we explained. I was able to explain they're doing this. Maybe from the kids was like a oops. There's going to be more police patrols around. Now I have to be in my house where my parents asked me to be. 
but for the parents of this community, it was a relief to know that there were more um, uh, patrols, security patrols. Galicia also helped the San Juan community create a brand new leadership council, or a more informal homeowners association to advocate for the residents. That led to the group sending a letter to the property manager of the San Juan del Centro apartments with a long list of concerns ranging from broken locks and common areas to drug deals and parking lots. My dream is to work in collaboration with them because if you just work with one part of the team, it's going to be hard. Galicia says many residents are also asking for more help from the police department. The pandemic interrupted another series of meetings this year that were going to connect residents with law enforcement, but new connections are still being made over Zoom. Well, now Chief Harold knows that there is a problem, but she's no, she doesn't have magic. And that includes elevating residents like Sonia Sarabia, who says she will keep speaking out about the security concerns, despite worries she will ruffle some feathers. We reached out to several other San Juan residents and the property manager, but Sarabia was the only one to come forward. She's viewed as a spokesperson for residents about their security concerns. I want to help my community and for my community to feel safe again and be able to walk at any time of the night and feel like, oh no, nothing's going to happen to me. That's what, the, what I wish for. And at a time many are calling to defund and limit police presence, Sarabia is asking Chief Harold for the opposite. We want for them to be present. And that's what, um, that's our next step, to get more of our residents to get together and then talk to, arrange a meeting with her so we can start taking action. Meanwhile, Chief Harold says the city has assigned a new data analyst who is diving deeper into the calls at the apartment complex to help guide a more targeted approach. And they're actively shifting to less policing, instead bringing in social workers and other city departments to take on some of those roles. Scott Franz, KUNC. Our series Under Pressure continues tomorrow with a look at why so many officers are getting out of policing and what the Boulder Police Department is trying to do differently to fill those positions. They were resigning to literally move to Montana or Wyoming or go to Missouri and start a chicken farm. You can go deeper with our series on policing in Boulder and find our first story at KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The start of another month is quickly approaching, which for many Coloradans means rent is due. September will mark the first month in almost a year where tenants won't have protection from a federal moratorium on evictions put in place during the pandemic. The U.S. Supreme Court overturned it late last week. KUNC's Matt Bloom has been following the local impacts of the moratorium throughout the past year, and he joins us now with more. Hello, Matt. Hey, Aaron. Now, what does all this mean for Colorado renters? It means they've lost a really powerful tool to keep their housing, even if they're behind on rent because of COVID. Now, landlords can start moving forward with evictions in all of our communities here in Colorado, which is how things were before the pandemic. But data shows us What's different now is we just have a lot more people who are behind on rent because of how up and down the economy has been over the past year and a half. And a result, there's still a lot of people getting back on their feet. 
the Center for Budget Policies and Priorities, which is a nonpartisan research institute, just put out a survey that found roughly 121,000 Coloradans, or 9% of renters, are behind on rent. 121,000. That feels like a very significant number here. Are we seeing more evictions happen already? So far, not yet. But what we are starting to see are eviction filings increase in a lot of areas, which could be an indicator of what's to come. I stopped by Boulder County Eviction Court late last week to observe cases making their way through the system. And the courtroom was pretty busy, I have to say, with tenants and landlords coming out in and out of the room. We weren't allowed to record in there. Um, but I did speak with a landlord attorney, Dylan Becker, outside in the hallway. Um, he's been anticipating the end of the moratorium and working with property owners to prepare. Here's what he says about that. I think with this ending, landlords are going to be more keen to move their case forward. They'll feel more confident in doing so. Um, and so as a result, at least immediately, I do anticipate at least some bump in, in evictions. What's unclear is how big that bump will be. Evictions can take weeks or even months to work their way through the courts. So the immediate impact of the moratorium going away isn't being felt on the ground quite yet. I know some states have put their own eviction moratoriums in place or have passed other protections for renters. How has Governor Polis responded to the federal moratorium coming to an end? He has not gone as far as passing a state-level moratorium for Colorado, but what he has done is pass several executive orders this summer to help tenants basically catch up on rent, including one that gives tenants a full 30 days to make past due rental payments rather than the normal 10 days. In a statement, Polis said that he would consider extending that additional protection in the coming days if a significant backlog of rental assistance applications remains. On the topic of rental assistance, we know Colorado has received over $400 million from various stimulus packages that Congress passed specifically to distribute to struggling residents. How have those programs been working? It's been a mixed bag. So a recent U.S. Treasury report found that a lot of states, including Colorado, are distributing that money very slowly. Colorado has paid out less than 10% of those funds and is still working through a backlog of thousands of applications for rental aid that stretches back to late July. And that's made a lot of tenant advocates very concerned. They worry that these long waiting periods and backlogs could lead to a spike in evictions now that the CDC's moratorium is gone. Tom Ward is a housing attorney in Boulder County. We've lost our, our tool to, to stop evictions while we solve a case. And now we must rely on the landlord's willingness to wait for financial assistance to come through before evicting. Ward says the waiting time for rental assistance to come through varies greatly because there are just a lot of hoops people have to jump through. Many tenants don't have computers, they don't have reliable internet access, and they often simply don't have access to the necessary documents like a lease or, you know, proof of income or, or payments to complete a financial aid application. And any one of those things can slow the process down. And all of that just adds to all of this uncertainty for renters and landlords, I'd imagine. Looking forward, what happens next without the federal eviction moratorium? Well, we're definitely going to see more pressure on Governor Polis and the officials 
who are managing our housing assistance programs to speed that process up as much as possible. The state uh, recently switched its billing providers, which sounds like a small change, but it actually seems to be helping speed up some applications. They uh, have added more staffing to those programs, so we'll see if that makes an impact. We also have some new laws that the state legislature passed earlier this year that go into effect in early October that are designed to help tenants. They do things like cap late fees, extend the amount of time landlords have to wait before filing an eviction, which are big helps to tenants who are struggling, but they aren't nearly as strong as the CDC's moratorium. So ultimately, what I've heard from both landlords, tenants, and experts on the issue is we should expect to see some kind of bump in evictions in Colorado this fall. Matt Bloom covers the economy for KUNC. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. You're welcome. Hate crime is a growing problem in Colorado. According to a new FBI analysis, hate crimes in the state have reached their highest level in at least 30 years. And while the rise in bias-motivated crimes follows a national trend, Colorado saw an increase that far outpaced much of the rest of the country. Jeremy Shaver is with the Mountain States Region Anti-Defamation League, a national group that aims to combat hatred and hate crimes. He is here to help us understand the story behind these numbers. Uh, Jeremy, we appreciate you joining us today. It's my honor and thank you for the invitation. Remind us what constitutes a hate crime and why is it important to keep track of them and to quantify how often they occur? So a hate crime has four elements. The first element is you have to have an underlying offense. You have to actually have a crime. The second part is it has to affect persons or property. The third part is that there's some intentionality to the act, that somebody intentionally targets someone else in that because of their identity. And that is the fourth element, that somebody is targeted because of who they are, their race, religion, gender identity, sexual orientation, disability. That's what a hate crime is. So at the very basic level, it's it's a crime that targets somebody because of who they are. Diving into the numbers here in Colorado, what do we know about who is being targeted? What types of bias-motivated crimes are happening? In Colorado, the three largest segments of bias-motivated crimes, uh, the first one is uh, crimes based on an individual's race, ethnicity, or ancestry, and that is the vast majority of reported hate crimes in Colorado. The second uh, highest category is the targeting of individuals because of their sexual orientation, their actual or perceived sexual orientation. And then the third category is uh, is based on religion, one's religion. Okay. Chances are that hate crimes are even higher than what is actually being reported. I assume that not every incident gets reported, and there are even some agencies that don't report. Is that right? That is true. Many individuals who are targeted with a hate crime do not report. They do not report for a variety of reasons. But just anecdotally, also, we know that uh, just from communities that we've worked with, folks have said, well, I didn't report that to law enforcement. I didn't think they could do anything about it. And then we also, the data that we receive, you know, the, based on the reports from the community then goes to law enforcement and law enforcement's uh, ability to recognize, respond to these reports and in, include them in their annual crime reporting is also important. You know, just looking at Colorado, we had a 100 uh, cities of a variety of population sizes in Colorado 
uh, affirmatively report zero crimes and all of hate crimes in all of 2020, 100 communities. That's a big number. Um, and so uh, reporting, reporting is certainly, uh, th there are challenges to it. And we certainly know that there is some underreporting. Well, let's talk about this FBI report, which showed uh, that not only is hate crime increasing in Colorado, but it's increasing at a faster rate than the nation as a whole. I find that very surprising. And I'm wondering, is hate and bias generally rising in the state? What, what is driving that increase? We are seeing a legitimate increase. I think part of that is as our state population uh, diversifies and we see larger percentage of the population that is Hispanic or other types of groups that are frequently targeted with these types of crimes, that certainly has, has a role. I also just really wanna emphasize that Law enforcement agencies over the last couple of years have done increased training you know, at the local, state, and federal level to help law enforcement agencies recognize these crimes, properly categorize them, and report them to the FBI. So certainly we probably have two factors at play. One is both the rise in these types of crimes generally, but also more of them are being identified and investigated by law enforcement as hate crimes. So both, both are factors to this to this increased uh, number. Well, I'm wondering if you can speak to what bias-motivated crime training looks like for the law enforcement agencies that have implemented it. Certainly, and you know, one thing that I do is I actually go out to police academies across Colorado and teach teach a class. And so, you know, the the basic training um, really helps law enforcement officers as well as prosecutors. Um, look at what are the what are the basic elements of a hate crime like we discussed at the top of this uh, interview. Um, what are the indicators? So looking at um, how to recognize an, a hate crime and gather evidence on hate crimes, a, a crime that's reported by an individual, whether a suspect is ever arrested or whether there's ever a charge brought still counts um, in the FBI report. And so we go through kind of those reporting things. And then just this last Friday, um, the 8th Judicial District, so the District Attorney's Office for Larimer and uh, Jackson Counties, um, held its own uh, training on bias-limited crimes so that the investigators and prosecutors in the office, again, um, have a higher level of familiarity. They can recognize these crimes and um, you know, understand how to respond to them most effectively. The state legislature made some significant moves to address rising hate crimes during the last session. Can you tell us about that? So the Colorado General Assembly passed a bill that looks at mixed motive hate crimes. So previously, uh, the way the statute was written, a crime had to be solely or predominantly focused as a, as a hate crime that somebody was targeted only because of their identity. And so now uh, prosecutors and law enforcement can look at mixed motive crimes so that bias plays you know, an aspect of a crime. Um, that that really helps uh, just define better the kind of the nature of these types of crimes, how they happen. Lawmakers changed both the uh, bias motivated harassment statute and the criminal statute to include that mixed motive. And so that that was the change that happened this year. When it comes to addressing bias motivated crimes in Colorado, where should we be focusing our efforts? Is there a way that we as a society can kind of get our arms around this problem? We need to see action on the local, state, and federal level. I think anything that can be done at the very local level, so police departments creating advisory committees that include 
representatives of targeted populations, for instance, so that they can have a regular uh, stream of conversation back and forth to hear what's happening in communities. Why are targeted populations reporting or not reporting? Are there things that they can do to increase that level of trust? Anything that can happen at the local level between police departments and uh, district attorney's offices are really uh, quite impactful. One, one DA's office in Colorado created its own bias motivated crimes hotline so that individuals who, who feel like they've been targeted with a crime can call this hotline, report it, and an intake person who's not necessarily a, a law enforcement officer will talk with them first, get the, get the information, and then pass it along to the right person. And so, for some folks who may be hesitant to go immediately to law enforcement, those type of local hate crime hotlines can also help. And I think we need our victims advocates, our victims uh, advocate offices to also really do some increased um, outreach to, to local communities. But anything that can be done on the very specific community level to improve trust between targeted communities and law enforcement, I think is gonna have a, a greater level of success. Local is always the most effective. Jeremy Shaver is Senior Associate Director for the Mountain States Region Anti-Defamation League, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we examine why law enforcement officers are leaving the force in greater numbers and the approach one police department is taking to fill those positions. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Alana Schreiber. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.